Deuteronomy chapter 5 this evening. As on Sunday nights we make our way through the Bible from Genesis uh, to Revelation. Now, in a technical sense, we're not going to start at chapter 5, uh, verse 1, because uh, we'll start in chapter 4, verse 44, because we stopped at chapter 4, verse 43. It's tremendous, really. <laughs> Such a grasp of things here. But in, in, at the end of uh, uh, the verse 43, and, and beginning there in verse 44 through verse 49 of chapter 4, there's kind of a little bit of a... Uh, a wondering whether uh, th these verses constitute the conclusion to Moses' first sermon or whether they constitute the introduction to his second sermon. And uh, that may not mean anything to you, but I'm just trying to explain to you why we stopped in the middle of the chapter. And, uh, and it does seem that these, this section of Scripture represents his introduction to his second sermon. Now remember, this is where we are. The children of Israel now constitute the second generation of Jews that came out of the nation of Israel, and, or out of the, the nation, rather, of land of Egypt. And of that first generation, only three survived, Joshua, Caleb, and Moses, and Moses will go to be with the Lord at the end of this particular book. And so this is a, a second generation and what Moses is there, they are camped on the east side of the Jordan River, immediately opposite of the city of Jericho, which is going to be the first city that is a part of their conquest of uh, the promised land, the land of Israel. And they've got everything in place. They've got their army. They've got their priesthood. They've got their tabernacle. They've got all of the furnishings. And everything's kind of put in place physically. But as God looks at this nation and as Moses looks at them, he realizes they're not quite yet spiritually ready to go in for a conquest of the land, that they need to be reminded of some things before they go in and, and conquer the land. And so Moses proceeds in the book of Deuteronomy to give them a, uh, five, uh, a series of five sermons. And that's the whole book of Deuteronomy. It's, a, it's five sermons from Moses to the children of Israel. And each sermon has the same theme it is the theme of obedience. And as, as the old saying goes, you win or lose by the way you choose. And it, it's not enough to know a bunch of things about God. Where we end up in life, where we end up uh, in, in our, the fruitfulness of our life, making a difference for the Lord, all of these things are not dependent supremely on what we know, though that is important, but upon how much we obey what we know. And so he pounds this great message of obedience. And I love the book of Deuteronomy because of that theme. And I'm not, a, I'm not out like uh, every day willfully disobeying the Lord or anything like that. I'm not perfect just like anybody else. But I like to be reminded of the importance of obedience. And you look at any Christian's life and you watch the, the, the Christian who is serious about obeying God's Word, and you look at the quality of life that's produced in that person. And then you look at the Christian who's not so concerned about obeying God's Word and His commandments, and you look at the lack of quality of, of that person's life, and it's its own testimony. And obedience a lot uh, ha is dependent upon our simple obedience to the Word of God. And so it, it's a great theme that 
that he lays out. Now, as he begins the second uh, sermon, it's always good when you finish one sermon and you're about to begin another sermon that you kind of regroup everyone and say, now remember this is where we've been and, and now uh, this is what we're talking about here. And he kind of does that here in verse 44. Now, this is the law... Uh, which Moses set before the children of Israel. And so he's teaching them the law of Moses and uh, that had been given to the first generation that they had been disobedient to, and that's why they're all dead in the wilderness and not going to possess the promised land. So this is the law and the, uh, that is set before the children of Israel. Here are the things that constitute the law. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which Moses spoke to the children of Israel after they came out of Egypt. So he is speaking about the importance of obeying God's law, obeying the testimonies of God. That testimonies are the things that declare the will of God, the statutes of God, how we're to live our lives individually in the light of God's uh, word and his, his commands. And then the judgment speaks about what happens to a person when we fail to uh, obey God's commandments. And so this theme of obedience, he reminds them that this is the theme the location uh, where he delivers this uh, second sermon is the same place as the, where he delivered the first. On this side of the Jordan, the east side of the Jordan River, modern-day Jordan today, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon, whom Moses and the children of Israel defeated after they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land and the land of uh, Og, king of Bashan, two kings of the Amorites who are on this side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun from uh, Aroer, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, even to Mount Sion, that is Hermon, and all the plain of the east side of the Jordan as far as the Sea of Arba below, uh, Araba, below the slopes of Pisgah. So they, they, they we're again talking about two to three million people who are camped there and the, the area that they are covering in this uh, with their camp is just gigantic. And no wonder why the people in Jericho were terrified uh, looking across the Jordan River at this group of people knowing that they were uh, the first thing on the menu, uh, candidly, for when this hungry group of people came into the land. Now chapter 5. And uh, here in chapter 5, Moses and Moses called all of Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, at the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today that you may learn. So he talks about hearing, but then hearing for the purpose of learning them and then be careful to observe them. And here is Moses bringing out what James brings out very clearly in his epistle, and that is we're not to be hearers of the Word alone, but we are to be doers of the Word of God. There are so many people who have possess mountains of information about God, about the Bible. They know so much. They've been raised in church. They've been raised around the things of God. But unless what they know is obeyed, their life isn't going to be any better for all of their knowledge than the person who doesn't know anything about God at all. So the importance of knowing and then obeying. And, and he's driving that home. That they're... The first generation that died off in the wilderness knew everything they knew. 
But they did not couple what they knew with obedience. And so they're dead. They never fulfilled God's purposes for their life. And, and so he's saying, he's starting right here at the beginning and saying, where they stumbled was in the area of obedience. It is so goofy how, how we can think that we are spiritual on the basis of what we know. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to uh, through the years. I'm not talking about people in this room necessarily. But, uh, but they know so much, but they don't obey. And it's like, I know that, I know that, I know that, I know that. Their life is a complete disaster, but they consider themselves to be deeply spiritual on the basis of what they know. We are spirits on the basis of what we know, coupled with a heart of submission to the, the Word of God, and then a willingness to obey that Word. That allows the, the fullness of God unleashing His blessing in His life. And then He gets to be seen through our lives. And so He drives home this, this very, very important uh, lesson and kind of sets the tone for the second sermon here in verse 1. And the Lord our God... As here he uh, begins to uh, speak to them, and he's gonna, what he's going to do here in the remainder of this chapter is he's going to review for them the Ten Commandments. Now, we looked at the Ten Commandments at some length uh, earlier in the book of Exodus chapter 20. And, uh, but remember, that generation's dead. This is a new generation. And so Moses is going to make sure they know the Ten Commandments. And so that's why it's repeated again in the Bible here in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And the Lord, he reminds them, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. And the Lord did not make this covenant, he's talking about the law of Moses, with our fathers, but with us. Not with the patriarchs, not with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as wonderful as they were, as wonderful as the revelation was that they had. This generation here, their forefathers, immediate forefathers, and them here, they have, uh, uh, God made this covenant of the law with them. We, those who are alive here today, all of us who are alive. And the Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. And so what he's saying to these people is he's trying to build within them a sense of some awe related to the Word of God and related to the commandments of God. Never, ever, ever lose your awe of the fact that you got a Bible on your lap the privilege that the, it is that there is a Bible in this world that God has chosen to speak to mankind, His law to speak to mankind, His definitions of right and wrong. Look anywhere you want in the world and you look at the nations where God's definitions of right and wrong as it's the, uh, dictated in the law, uh, in the Ten Commandments, and where you see that's been disregarded and nations have been built on other standards of man's standards of right and wrong, and you, almost without exception, are looking at nations you don't want to live in. And then you look at those nations that have been built upon God's Ten Commandments as a standard for what is right and wrong, and even if that is a distant part of their history, and it is still influencing that nation, those are the nations everyone wants to run to in the world. Not because of what they are economically or this thing or entertainment or this or that. That's never the source of a nation's greatness. But that it is built up spiritually upon God's definition of right and wrong. I never fail. By the grace of God, 
Every morning when I pick this Bible up and I begin to read this Bible, I can't believe I get to read the Word of God. I don't know what, where my life would be without the Word of God. I'm so thankful it's in the human condition that it's been introduced into human history. So he's telling them, you think Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they got all the perks from God and you got nothing? No, you got from God here in the form of of His law and His commandments a privilege and a blessing they could only dream of. And and so that's the point he's driving home to them. This the, The joy and the privilege that is ours to have God's Word and then the privilege of being able to obey His Word. How many of us are thankful today for... I, before I came to know the Lord, uh, one of the reasons I came to know the Lord was I was a victim of my collective wisdom. I was so thankful that there is somebody smarter than me in the world that I could turn the steering wheel over to, and that's the Lord. Thankful for the Word of God. So He's, he's uh, making them realize this isn't some kind of law that we've got to grind against, and God said it, so we have to do it. It's a, it's a privilege to obey His his word. And, and he talks about how God gave it to them face to face on the mountain from the midst of fire. This word, when God gave them the Ten Commandments and all, he didn't give it to them by a vision. He didn't give it to them by a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge or a dream or anything like that. God came to them face to face on Mount Horeb and brought this law to them. They have, they have and had a God that was willing to meet with them in that way. And, and so he said, I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord. This is what he revealed on Mount Horeb related to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. That's his, that's his preface right there, verse 6. Before he ever gets to the Ten Commandments, he reminds them, remember Egypt, which is a picture of our life in the world, the bondage of sin, the bondage of, of the world before Jesus saved us out of that. He said, you remember the bondage you were in, you remember the life you had before I introduced myself into your life. And you remember how I saved you, how I changed you, what you, I brought you out of, what I brought you into. And now, in response to that, these are the commandments that I want you to keep. I think that very often people think related to the Ten Commandments that they're just kind of, you know, something that you chisel into a plaque or something. And God just gave these ten hard-line commandments and they're just dry as dust and He just gave them to the children of Israel and said, now you obey this or I'll clobber you. That's not how He gave it. He gave it to them and He said, now listen, in response to all that I have already done for you, here are the commandments that you're to keep as an expression of your thanksgiving and your worship to me for what I've already done in your life. The Bible says we love Him, God. New Testament, we love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. Every command He gives us in the Bible is to be obeyed in response to who and what He has already been to us. So this isn't some kind of 
thing where you were to take the law of Moses or the Ten Commandments and just put them over here and obey them in your own strength and just go through some kind of a mindless ritual in obeying them. The obedience was to be linked to their personal relationship. Nobody can obey any commandments of God independent of their relationship with Him. It's, it's the fact that, that He has done such wonderful things for us that we're so indebted to Him. He's been so good to us when He didn't need to be good to us that that provides the motivation for us to obey His Word. And the thing of it is, is He'll always be gracious, He'll always be good, He'll always be faithful. We will never run. If our motivation is response to how good He's been to us, we will never run out of a motivation for obeying His Word because He never stops being good to us and blessing our lives. So remember what I've done for you. And then now, in the light of that, here are the Ten Commandments. You shall have, he said, no other gods uh, before me. And so as he speaks here, uh, it, the, the idea of, of this is that they're not to have any other gods in the presence of the Lord. It isn't a thing where the Lord is saying, listen, you can have a bunch of gods, just keep me number one. That's not what he was saying. He said, when he says, you shall have no other gods before me, no other gods in my presence. And, and it's only, only him. So the Lord isn't to be like one of many, many gods in our lives. He's to be the only God in the lives of, of his people. Now, the land that the children of Israel were going into, dominated by polytheism. I mean, to mountains of God that these people were worshiping. And the danger for the children of Israel was never, never that they would completely abandon Jehovah for these other gods. That was never their danger. Their danger was, was that they would then mix the worship of these other gods into the worship of Jehovah. And that's the same danger for most of us as, as Christians. We, for most of us in this room, we know too much about God. We have too much of a history with God to, to ever walk away and say, you know, I don't want anything to do with him. He's false. I'm going to go, you know, wholeheartedly follow the gods of, of this world. The greater danger for most of us is that we'll allow all the other things that everybody else worships in the Lord to now get attached to our lives and become a, a part of our, our worship and it gets joined to our worship of the Lord. And he says, no other gods in my presence, no other gods in addition to me, no other gods before me. Command number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. So he's going to, uh, he forbids any idolatry, no statues of him, no images of him. The Bible says God is a spirit, God the Father. He's spirit, and he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Because he is spirit, he doesn't take a physical form, you can't represent him by a physical form. It's, it's folly to do that. And, and so he tells him, don't do that. The other thing is, is that the Bible teaches that God the Father, it, well, all, all persons in the Godhead involved in, in the creation of all that's been created, but God is the creator of all things. He's the only one that isn't created, Father, Son, and Spirit. The only f things in the whole universe, the whole everything, however you want to let your mind go off in all directions, He's the only one that isn't created. So you cannot properly represent God by a created thing. That will always be to diminish Him. 
And that's why God has given us His Holy Spirit. You take people that get into idolatry, it, it means, it, where they've got images of Christ, or they've got images of this, and they, they, they start to move into that path. Those are people that need an experience with the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit opens something up to us in our relationship with God that idols could never do. So you cannot represent a, a, a God who is spirit and a God who is a creator of everything and thus can't be, is not a creation himself by the worship of created things. So it's, it's illogical. He says, don't do it. And, and then he ransacks the universe to, in case they aren't clear on it. Here's, here's a, a, a rundown on it. Any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or on the, in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, who in their right mind is going to hate this God, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Then commandment number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless uh, who takes his name in vain. So this certainly includes using the Lord's name in, in terms of profanity, or swearing something that is, is true in God's name when it isn't true, or making an oath that I'm going to do something in God's name and then no, and no intention of keeping it. And, it. and it also includes using the name of the Lord emptily, where people will say, Oh my God, or something like that. And, so, and a lot of Christians say that. They just say that as a regular part of, of their... And I use it as an il illustration. I'm guilty of it in, in order to make it, to make the point. But... Uh, that th his name is not to be used in, in vain. And uh, even though the world doesn't think anything of it, God notices it and he doesn't want it. And then in verse 12, he talks about keeping the Sabbath day uh, uh, and, and keeping it holy. They were to observe the day to keep it holy. I'll refer you completely to Exodus chapter 20 uh, related to that because that's a lengthy discussion and we talked about it then. So observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor, do all your work. But on the seventh day is the Sabbath, and Sabbath means rest of the Lord your God. And in it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox. Get this? I mean, he knows us. All right, well, I won't have the kids do anything, but I have those ox out there, you know. Nope, let everything rest. The donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, there is two differences between the, God's giving of, of the law in Exodus chapter 20 and then His giving of the law, uh, uh, the Ten Commandments here. And this is one of the differences. 
In Exodus chapter 20, when he gives the, uh, uh, the reason for keeping the Sabbath day, he emphasizes the fact that they were to keep the Sabbath in order to be like God, who had spent six days in the creation of the heavens and the earth, and then he rested on the seventh day. And so it was to, the Sabbath was to be a day of rest in order to follow kind of the example of God here. He gives the rationale, the reason for keeping the Sabbath as a, as, uh, as a day in which they remember that they were once slaves in, in Egypt uh, it, itself and uh, uh, before they were liberated. And so they, they were, had once been you know, uh, oppressed and had been used as slave labor and then God had delivered them out of that and so it was appropriate that uh, the, the Israelites should celebrate the fact of God's deliverance of them out of Egypt by granting relief one day a week to their slaves and to their animals and even themselves by resting on the Sabbath. Honor your father and uh, your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be uh, long and that it may be well with you in the land in which the Lord is giving given you. And so the word honor there and this begins like the second tablet of the law. The first tablet of the law has to do with man's relationship with God, his vertical relationship. The remainder of these these commandments have to do with our, our horizontal relationship with our fellow man. And so he says that father and mother <clears throat> are to be <clears throat> honored uh, by their children. And the word honor means to be heavy or to treat with honor. In other words, children are to respect their parents. They were to respect uh, their God-given authority. And so this is a protection upon the family unit from rebellion by children against their parents and thus threatening the institution of the family within a culture. And in fact, God was so serious about protecting uh, the family unit against rebellious children that he took and made it a capital crime. And children under the law of Moses, we are not under the law of Moses, let me make that clear tonight on this, but the, the principle is a good one. Under the law of Moses, a rebellious child who dishonored their parents was stoned to death. God just took care of that right away. That wasn't good. You're not, you weren't going to have any gangs among the children of Israel. You're just not going to mess with that stuff. Is, is God the smart one and are we the stupid idiots or what? You just weren't going to do that. You weren't going to have classroom problems. You weren't going to have kids in the neighborhood drawing other kids into other things. It just wasn't going to happen. And you only had to stone one or two of them to death in a village before everybody got the message, right? <laughs> and instead, we're so smart, we'll sacrifice an entire generation to drugs and immorality and shooting, and we're smarter than God. Well, I don't want to get that excited, but I did. It's hard living in an insane asylum where nothing makes sense to me anymore in terms of the decision-making. And, and so that was that. And, and the promise here is that as you, they would obey their parents' instruction, uh, it would lead in general to a life of blessing and be good with you. It's, it's amazing how dumb our parents can seem at certain ages in our life and then how brilliant they become once we have to take, once we've got our children and once we've got, you know, to earn a living and once we've got to do all the things they were doing when they were raising us. And, uh, and so there is a, there is a, a blessing that's found 
uh, in that. They're smarter than we are. They have more life experience. doesn't mean all of them are the greatest. But in general, as they would live the law of Moses, they'd be pretty good parents. Commandment number six was, you shall not murder. And I think in the old King James it says, you shall not kill. But it literally means uh, murder. And, and so the, the, in, in the Old Testament, uh, to murder someone that was a capital crime, your life would be taken. So often people say, well, it's so you know, contradictory, the Bible. I mean, here you, you Christians, you fight against abortion and the death of, of children in the womb, and, and, uh, and yet you believe in capital punishment. I mean, it, I mean, is, is it? That, not only is that apples and oranges, that's apples and rye bread. I mean, those things aren't even remotely close to one. But God is a protector of innocent life. He's a protector of innocent life. And so when a person murdered another person in order to protect uh, society and law and order within that society, he made it a capital crime. He said, you shall not commit adultery. So here is a a command that protected the marriage relationship. So the other command protected the family unit. This one protects the marriage relationship. I, I just before we went off uh, and, and were gone for a couple of weeks, um, you might have read the article in the Modesto Bee, and, uh, uh, but they were talking about the, the rate of um, uh, AIDS in the United States of America and how the Centers for Disease Control uh, purposely and willfully have, uh, have for a period of time underreported the number uh, the, the, uh, of, of, of uh, AIDS uh, cases in, in the United States of America. It was already considered to be an epidemic at its reported rate. It's worse than people think, and it's probably worse than their new numbers. The protection against sexually transmitted diseases is to marry a person that is a virgin and then to remain sexually faithful to that person all of your life. You want to do a horrifying uh, study? Do a study on the levels of sexually transmitted diseases in the United States of America, the numbers are staggering. And, and there isn't a need for them to be what they are. God is the smart one. He says there is not to be the committing of adultery. He said you shall not steal. There is to be a, a respect for private property within a uh, within a society that is a sane society or a righteous society, a godly society. I happen to live, I don't know how many of you live in Modesto. I happen to live in, in a city, and God bless the understaffed law enforcement of this city and this county. I don't, certainly don't blame them. I wish there were a hundred for every one of them that were, were uh, doing their job. But we know that for the last how many years we've been one, two, or three, and usually number one in car thefts. The whole United States of America. And then they, you know, clamp down on the car thefts, and then the burglary rates go up because everybody's got to feed their drug addiction and the meth addiction and all this kind of stuff. And, and at one point, there's, I'm not going to reveal too many details, but at one point it was 
being reported on, uh, out of a concern for us as citizens or as, uh, uh, you know, I guess citizens or whatever, people that live in Modesto, that not only not to put your mail out on your box for the mailman to pick up, but, you know, in those new neighborhoods where they got these gigantic boxes where everybody is putting their mail, they put the mail in and we all go to the box to get the mail out, that kind of, not even to put it in that because the thieves have become so bold they back up a pickup truck to it, put a chain around it, and they drag it away. And they open it up in some shop somewhere and that's where your mail is. I can't even mail my mail in a, in a gigantic iron box that's bolted to the sidewalk in this city. That's how smart we are and how dumb God is. Thou shalt not steal. And you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so there isn't to be any lying, certainly no false testimony in, in court. A person's word was to be to be right and true. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servants, his ox, his donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor's. You say, well, I don't have any servants. How can I? My neighbor doesn't have any servants. How can I? Listen, we have servants like you can't believe. You got a dishwasher at home? You got servants. You got a washing machine at home and a dryer? You have servants. You have a lawnmower, you have servants. They've just been taking the place of, of, of the, the technology has just allowed these things to do these other things for us. So do not covet your neighbor's uh, washing machine or his car or his dryer or anything like that. Well, there goes the whole American economy. It's all built on covetousness and planning a, 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 a discontent in our heart over what we have and look over at what they have and what you don't have and the commercials all do the same thing and, and it's stirring all this up in us. Now, you tell me. I don't know how far we'll get and I'm not apologizing, for, but I am apologizing, but I'm not apologizing. So I'm doing both at the same time for you tonight. This is a tremendous gift I have. I don't know that we'll get to chapter 6 tonight. What country in their right mind will remove those Ten Commandments as a standard of right and wrong from their courthouses and from the next generation to form their definition of right and wrong and to think you're going to end up in doing that, having any kind of country that anyone with a heart for God or a desire for peace or a desire for righteousness would ever want to live in. I'm 53 years old. I am not an old wise owl by any means at this point in time. If the Lord tarries, I wouldn't mind on, in some ways being 83 someday. In some ways, I don't want to be 83. But those of you who are up in those age brackets and you look at where things have been and where they're going, it's a scary thing. And it can't go on forever. Because when you take as a, a significant and powerful group in the United States of America is to remove first visually this Ten Commandments from even being a part of something that comes across the human eye in the public setting, you don't just take those things away, you replace them with something. And they know that, and they are replacing it with wicked, vile, terrible, ridiculous standards of man that it's not even going to take half a generation for the foolishness of it to show up and show up in the form of making a victim of everyone that follows their definitions of right and wrong. And you look at it. Just look at these, these things. 
is, and, and related to the United States of America. You shall have no other gods before me. That, ha- that our, our nation increasingly worshiping anything other than the God of the Bible. No, no carved images, no idolatry, no worship of the created thing. And that's what idolatry is, is the worship of created things. This culture worships created things. Talks about not taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. Look at the television. Look at the comedians. Look at how God's name is taken in vain. The Sabbath uh, day. And, and then he talks there about honoring your father and, and your mother. Look at what's uh, happened even with the culture. Undermining the authority of parents to raise their children in the way that they want to raise their children, and then having undermined our authority, and then our children go haywire, we are still legally responsible and liable for them. They want to have it both ways. But you see that that going on, the breakdown of the family unit, murder, I mean, all over the place, adultery all over the place, and the new morality uh, since the 60s, theft, again, I've already laid the case for that, lying all over the place. Just get an automobile accident with someone and then have them say, oh, it's completely my fault, and I'll take care of everything like that, and and then find out what gets told later on, how many people tell the truth when it comes to costing them something. And, and then not coveting. This country is very, very far away from this standard in a way that it has never been in our history. And you cannot live indefinitely on the wrong side of God's definition of right and wrong until, un, unless you're willing to watch a country turn into something and turn into a country you don't want to live in or that just frustrates you to death. Now, isn't that perky? Let's not stop there, though. So what in the world do you do? What do you do? It's a juggernaut. It's a runaway train. It's crazy. I mean, we go to work, and we're working every day, and they're passing bills that are so obscene and so wrong and such a violation of the Word of God and even common sense, and they pass them while, while we're, we're hustling and trying to keep food on the table. There's stuff going on all the time. So what we can we do? I'll tell you... I am determined in my own life and in my own family and in my own neighborhood and in my own city and everywhere I go to live by the grace of God the standard of His, what His standard is of right and wrong. I cannot change the world. But I can give God, try to give God, my simple obedience to His Word and say, Lord, if you'd like to bring some revival out of that, then I'd sure be happy to see that. And so the commitment that needs to be made on our part in terms of the laws of the land, in terms of stopping at stop signs, little things, not running red lights, being true to our Word, if they're going to remove the... God's definitions of right and wrong from all of these physical places, then we've got to make sure that that's being communicated through the living tablets of our lives as He writes on them. And then to see what He might do as a result of that. And there's a need for that in our lives as Christians to obey His Word for people to see in our schools, in our business places, in church, people that are actually living, submitted 
to God's standard of, of right and wrong. And it's an urgent time in the history of our nation for that to be the case. You, uh, and, and then, if you want to take it... Okay, just checking my time. It's a disaster. It's just a disaster already. Take that grid of the Ten Commandments now. Let's move away from picking on the United States of America. This is my country. This is the country I've grown up in. You take that standard, and now you put it against the world. You tell me what country in the world lives by that standard including Israel. And I'm telling you, this whole world, in its pride and in its arrogance and in the rebellion of fallen man's heart against God, it is heading headlong into producing something in this world that is frightening because I don't see any country in the world that has that as a standard for right and wrong that they're adhering to. And so for us, the hope and the thing is to say, Lord, they can remove it off the walls, but they they can't take my life just yet. And I want people to see your definition of right and wrong in my life every single day. And these are the words which the Lord spoke to your assembly. In the mountain, uh, from the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone, and he gave them to me. So Moses is talking about the divine authorship of those Ten Commandments. This came from God, and he wrote them on stone. The reason he wrote them on stone instead of on a yellow pad of paper is because these things are permanent. These don't change in human history, is his definition of of right and wrong. Now, before we leave this, it's important for me to come back to, to one other thing. We're not under the law of Moses as Christians, but we're not lawless people. We're under a higher law. Jesus came into the world and he said, I didn't come to destroy the world or destroy the law. He said, I came to fulfill it. And in the Romans chapter 8, it talks about the fact that we, it talks about the law of the Spirit. The law of the Holy Spirit, what the law of the Spirit is, is God's Holy Spirit has come into our life when we became Christians. And He gives us the will to obey God's Word, and He gives us the power to obey God's Word. And He does inside of us what the law of Moses could never do. You ever left a conversation with someone and you didn't exactly handle yourself perfectly there in that conversation and you walk away from it and there's something stirring inside of you, something's wrong. Okay, God, I did something bad there because, I mean, I've lost my peace here. What happened? Well, and then he kind of remember this and the whole, oh boy, okay, I'll try not to do that again. Sorry about that and ask you to forgive me on the deal. I mean, God... the. As a Christian, the standard is even higher for us because under the law of Moses, you could keep all of these things outwardly and yet your thoughts could be wicked, your motives could be wicked, uh, all, all these kind of things. When the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, man, he, do, he doesn't let you get away with anything in your motives, anything in your thoughts. So we're not under the law of Moses. God will, the Holy Spirit inside of us as Christians will, will cause us to live an even more holy life 
And Jesus' life is the definition of holiness. That's the definition of holiness, is to, to look at his life. But the Holy Spirit will empower us and convict us and prod us to live a, an even stricter uh, example of God's definition of right and wrong before the world. So we're not technically under the law of Moses, but we don't look and say, well, we're not under that, so I can do whatever I want. No, that's, not, that's how the Holy Spirit works in a person's life. He takes us into greater Christ-likeness. And so it was. Here was uh, there, uh, is, he reminds them that how the first generation, and some of them were still alive, though they were under the age of 20, when the law of Moses, uh, the Ten Commandments, was given to them at first. So he, he reminds them that when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, surely the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. And we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire, and we have seen this day that God speaks with man, and yet man still lives. That's <laughs> a marvel. So this is their response to God giving them the Ten Commandments. And now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? And so they said to Moses, You go near and hear all that the Lord our God may say, and then you come and tell us all that the Lord our God says to you, and we'll hear it and do it. Beautiful picture here in the Old Testament of the fact that when God came to the children of Israel and spoke the Ten Commandments to them in mass as a group, once they were confronted with the holiness of the Ten Commandments and the holiness of the God behind the Ten Commandments, they had a sense that we need a mediator between us and this God, a mediator between us and the standard of the law of Moses. And Moses, would you be our mediator, our go-between between us and God? And the Bible teaches that the, that the law of Moses in the Old Testament, it has done its job in a human's life when it convicts us of our sin. It convicts us of the impossibility of us having a consistent, unbroken relationship with a holy God because of how inconsistent and unholy we are. And so the search goes from, all right, I'm going to try and have a relationship with God on the basis of the law of Moses to where in the world is there a mediator that can mediate between us and God that allows a sinful man to have a personal relationship with a perfectly holy God. And so when Paul talks about that in the New Testament, it's not something that he's pulling out of his hat. It's something that happened at the time of the giving of the law of Moses. Immediately, they wanted a mediator in their life. They began to search for a mediator. And we know the ultimate mediator was not Moses. Moses was a picture of the mediator to come, Jesus, who is the mediator between God and man, the Bible says. And that's, so the law of Moses has done its job when that, when that happens. And then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. And then God says, Oh, that they 
had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments that it might be well with them and with their children forever. And God just looks and he says, I know they're making a commitment to me. And it's really a broken heart. When God says, oh, that they would have such a heart, he realizes they're saying it, but they won't obey it either. And it's going to keep me from blessing them the way that I want to. You win or lose by the way you choose. And so go and say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, Moses, stand here by me, and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. In other words, go ahead and take uh, that position as they've requested. And therefore you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you. All, obey all the commandments. That, that's a reason word, that you may live. It's, the motive Uh, is a motive of love on God's part behind every commandment in the Word of God. He doesn't look and say, well, boy, you know, I I don't want to have like a little tiny skinny book and so I'm going to load this up with a bunch of unnecessary commands. Every command in here is is important and and it, it is given in order that we can live a life that God can bless in the way that He wants to. That you may live, that it may be well with you, obeying God is so terrible and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess and this would have caused their whole heart to explode with just hope and excitement because God was speaking to them of the fact you are going to go into Canaan and you're going to possess that land but what I want you to know when you go in is that you need to obey my word, not just on this side of the Jordan River, but when you go in there, or you lose everything. Everything depends on simple obedience to his word. Well, since you've been such slow listeners tonight, I'm not going to be able to get into chapter 6 here <laughs> this evening, so we'll stop there tonight. But I'd like the worship team to come up, and, and uh, maybe we can be led in a couple of more worship songs this evening before